Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sports Zone Podcast, day one of the fifth test after England, in heartbreaking fashion, had the fourth test rained out when they're in such a dominant position and most likely going to win and tie the series 2 all to set up a, a deciding test match in the fifth one. But now the, the Ashes have been retained and I guess that significance of, of that series is gone. But there is still something on the line. There are inter-world test championship points on the line and there is sort of legacy on the line. Is Pat Cummins going to le- leave England with a series victory or is he going to leave England with the Ashes retained? Australia pushing for that series victory it's what they missed out on in the previous tour they they want it bad they want it badly back um can they do it? It's going to be interesting. It started off, though, with, I guess, Australia on their way to potentially doing it. England are 283 all out. Um, Harry Brook, top score with 85. And for Australia, which was Stark 4 for 82. And in response, Australia 61 for 1, trailing by another 222. Osman Quaja not out on 26. Marnus Labuschagne not out on 2. Chris Wokes getting the only wicket of David Warner on 24. Once again, I think a pretty interesting day of Test Match Cricket. Ebbs and flows, interesting decisions, interesting tactics, some great individual performances, some great uh, individual batting performances and bowling performances, um, and some poor fielding, which has actually been a pretty um, salient theme uh, of this Ashes series. Let's start with the decision to bowl first from, from Pat Cummins. Um... In hindsight, it's it's a good decision, uh, and I, I think his logic behind the decision was just the overcast conditions, and um, the the rain that had been sort of coming in the in the previous days. But honestly, the pitch looked a pretty basketball-esque pitch, a bit of moisture, a bit of off-the-pitch movement, a bit of turn, but pretty flat. So. Um, it's interesting that he bowled first. I think another fact that could have potentially contributed to it was taking the chase away from England. So um, essentially um, taking their strong suit away and uh, maybe Australia backing themselves to chase after after Edgbiston. But it worked. I, I don't think it was a really, really dodgy decision, but I think it was definitely a, a bold decision. You could definitely go the other way and bat first. But there were signs in the first session that the decision had merit to it. There was, there was a decent amount of movement. Um, and when Australia built the pressure, the wickets did come. And um, initially at the start, you felt England batting quite well. Um, and Australia weren't building that pressure enough, especially sort of stark up front. But I think the drop catches didn't help. Uh, Warner dropped a, a fairly regulation sitter of Ben Duckett. Harry Brook got dropped early on by Alice Carey. Smith had a tough one. Mitchell Marsh had a tough one at the end of the day. So it was Australia's turn now to slip up um, with the catching. It didn't cost them as much uh, as it perhaps should have from England's end. And I think that's because England lost wickets in clumps. They were none for 62. A very bright star. Ben Duckett on a run ball 40, essentially. Uh, Zach Crawley playing a bit more circumspect, but still a few good uh, shots on the up. A good straight drive. And then... Um, then Duckett was gone, Crawley was gone, playing across the line, and then Joe Root just playing a shot that really was just not there to play. It was perhaps probably even a bit too full to play that late cut, but it was definitely a bit too straight. Um, and yeah, in the end, he just cramped himself, got the inside edge, and you felt now all of a sudden Australia ahead of the game, with England being three down for 73. But then came Harry Brook and Moeen Ali. Let's focus on Harry Brook. Sublime touch. What was for me so scintillating and so sort of aesthetic pleasing to watch about Harry Brooks innings yesterday was his front foot and his balance at the crease. After lunch he had a straight drive and a covered drive. Um, but then if you contrast that 
to the way that he was batting before lunch. It, it, it's just a testament to what makes him such an exciting all-format talent. It's, it's his shot-making ability. Before lunch, there was a ball from Mitchell Marsh. It was it was backup length, half track up, not a great delivery, pretty pretty innocuous delivery. Um, but Brook barely even rocked onto the back foot. He just stood tall and played a short arm swivel off the crease with arrogance, just using his bottom hand through the line of the ball, runs, and then he backed away to a shorter ball from I think it was. Mitchell Stark, it was either Mitchell Stark or Josh Hader, I can't, I can't remember who it was. Um, it was, it was Mitchell Stark, yeah, he backed away to a shorter ball from Stark, and he cut it away, he just picked the length so early, and he cut away, and then a similar length, perhaps a bit shorter, and maybe a tad straighter in line, he moves across, so he moves across off stump, and he essentially glides for six behind square, a, a remarkable shot um, for a test matchup, but that's just the way Harry Brook plays. Um, and that's his talent. That's why he's been so good for in T20 cricket. That's why he's been so good in test matches. Because he has the shots to play both. He has the technique to play in test matches. He has the, the front of the wicket shots. He has the shots of the front foot. He has the, the traditional shots, as you like to call it. But he also has the, the baseball shots, the, the, the T20 shots. And he can bring both of them to test match cricket, which is why he's so hard to bowl to. But... I think the only thing perhaps plaguing him for a massive century and just massive scores over and over again, and that's probably still being a bit harsh on him considering averages over 60, um, is probably his application. We we saw the forehand smash tennis shots at Lords, um, and then we saw it at Headingley, um, and we've seen it get him, get him out a few times, and yesterday it, it wasn't the forehand smash tennis shot, but it was once again just a lack of concentration, a loss of concentration, and uh, laziness. His balance and his feet were so good all day, and then Stark sent one across, and all of a sudden he just reached without moving his feet, without committing to that front foot, without sort of upholding that balance that he's worked on all day, and just edged off, and you felt a bit let down. But nevertheless, I, I think it was a, a great knock. And sort of the other end of um, England's resurgence from being 3 for 73 and going to 3 for 134 was Moin Ali. He was playing pretty subdued, and he looked quite lethargic and, and sort of stubbornly stuck at the crease. Um, he wasn't playing as fluently as he normally would, or as you expect from a, a baseball batter. Um, but then came this sort of groin injury, which took like a five to ten minute delay. And then after that, he sort of just said, "All right, you know what? I, I'm not going to bother to fight this out. I'm just going to go for it." Um, launch Pat Cummins for I think a, a four and a six, or maybe a six and a six. Um, and then he hit Todd Murphy away for a four before sort of Murphy uh, Murphy cleaned him up. But yeah, it was just interesting to note that approach where he just sort of surrendered that hard work that he'd done. He said, okay, I'm injured, I'm just going to go for it. And really without anyone batting any eyelids because that's the freedom. I only thought it was the best, at, at that time, the best thing to do was just to go for it, and he did. And to an extent it worked off because it, it propelled England's momentum further. Um, but then when he got out, once again, England lost wickets and clumps. It was 3 for 184 before he got out, so 4 for 184 when he got out. And then all of a sudden, England was 7 for 212. Stokes falling cheaply, single digits. Johnny Bairstow falling cheaply, single digits. Harry Brook getting out in a lazy way. And this was a testament to Mitchell Stark's resilience and his hard work. Stark also seemed to have some problems with um, some part of his lower body. I'm not sure if it was his groin or his quads or his thighs, but he was, he was grimacing um, after lunch at, at a stage. Um, and he didn't look completely fit, but he sort of said in the in the post match, in the, in the post end of the day press conference that you know he just was going to fight it out no matter what, because he was selected to play this fifth test and he didn't want the team to be a bowler down on the first day because that's 
stuff of nightmares, right? Especially when you have so many backup bowlers there. Cameron Green could have played. You could have played Michael Deezer is in great form. You could have played Scott Boland. So there are options there. But they went with Stark because he's been their X Factor to an extent in this series. He's, he's got the wickets when they need him to get the wickets. And um, he's been relatively controlled, if you can talk about it in terms of basketball run rate. And yesterday, his sort of ability to push on and continue and sort of not lose control is probably a testimony to the the, the tour that he's had. When you feel that Stark might be letting Australia down, leaking a bit too much, he brings it back. He brings his control back and he gets the wickets. And that's why he's probably he's had his most successful tour of England. He's, I think, a bit more resilient. I think he's a bit more sort of mentally, I guess. He's got a few mental reps in, in England. I, I think the past tours are getting experience that, you know, it's not always going to go your way and there's pressure to always get wickets in England because the conditions suit you, can lead you to, lead you to go searching. And then when you go searching, that can often lead you to get leaking runs. And sort of the past tours, leaking runs is a no-go because basketball didn't exist. So if you go sort of four, four and over, then you're considering too much. But here, uh, I think also what's helped him is that going four, 4.5 is actually not that bad. So that scrutiny hasn't come... Um, and it's actually allowed him to sort of be more wicket-taking. And yesterday was the same thing. He stayed resilient. He worked hard. He got Ben Stokes with beauty. Tailed away very late. Perhaps Stokes put a bit of bay on it. I, I don't think it was that much of a chaffer. Like, uh, it wasn't per se a, a Lord's 2019 World Cup chaffer, that Yorker. I don't think it was that. But it was a good ball. Uh, I think Stokes probably committed too early on that on that shot, sort of that flick shot. Um, but yeah, St Stokes was sort of part of that resurgence Australia had in the clump of wickets they had and I think Todd Murphy was too and I think Todd Murphy's role yesterday just highlights the importance of a spinner um Moeen Ali was after his groin injury he was taking apart what he was taking about the paces um Mark Wood uh was also starting to sort of take apart some of the paces what did Todd Murphy do came in slowed the game down changed the pace made the batters sort of play different strokes, change your approach just because of the different bowler, the variety of bowling, bowling that they were facing. And he got both wickets. He got Moinoli and he got Mark Wood. And I think there was a lot of credit also as we give to Todd Murphy because I think he's shown a great temperament in this tour. I don't. I think he was used pretty unfairly in Headingley. And then to not play in Manchester was perhaps a bit harsh. Um, I'm not going to say it was a bad decision. I could see the merit behind playing Mitchell Marsh and Cameron Green together. And then to come back here today, not bowl at all um, in the first session. And then sort of get hit by Moen Ali early, get hit by Markwood early, but sort of pull it back, get the wicket of Moen Ali, get the wicket of Markwood. I think it just shows that he has a very good temperament, but he just has good skills. He has a good controlling off spinner. He has a good line and length, and we, we've seen that in India. You can easily get carried away in India by just sort of going searching for the spin, but he was relentless the whole tour. And at stages, he looked better than Nathan Lyon. I think towards the end of the tour, Nathan Lyon was definitely the best spinner. For Australia that tour, but Todd Murphy is, is a perfect understudy. And yesterday, I thought, um, in a low key way, he had a very big part in sort of Australia's resurgence in England's um, loss of wickets in, in, in clumps. This test match is sort of taking a similar trajectory to the, the first test match. Um, England bat first, start off very well, positive, basketball vibes are there, the crowd is, crowd is blowing. Um, uh, there's one elegant player out there, either Joe Root in the first test match or Harry Brook here, threatened to take the game away, lose a few wickets and clumps. In the first test match, you had a pretty frankly outrageous declaration. In the test match, you just had England get themselves out. Um, but yeah, you, end up, you perhaps end up feeling that England left 50 to 100 out there. Um, 
but as I've sort of waded the argument, the this whole this whole series and, and the pieces I've written in the podcast I've done, and um, uh, Vitushin from from Crick Info is that probably one of the the if you're gonna give it an award for who's the best writer of the summer, I'd give it to this guy. Um, the, so the argument that I've sort of summed up throughout the whole summer is that baseball is a double-edged sword. Yes, you can tell them for getting out and leaving runs out there, but would they have got the runs in the first place if they played? in a non-basketball way, because we've seen England sort of sacrifice the, the, the technique um, for just freedom and shot-making, it's made them get more runs, because when they batted technique and when they batted with the stigmas of test cricket associated with it, they would just collapse and barely get to 200. Um, and Vithushan wrote the same thing, he said basketball is either the reason they made it to what looks a decent score, or a tough wicket, or why they spurned the chance for 100 more runs. So it's a double-edged sword. If England showed a bit more temper- uh, temperance, uh, they might have got 350. But, would they have got 280 in the first place? You don't know. Um, and sort of what I've been urging throughout the whole series is a bit of moderation in, in Baswell. When the singles are there, take it. Um, if there's obvious short ball plan there, don't fall to it. Um, and I think yesterday there wasn't necessarily outrage, outrageous sort of outlandish stupidity occurring, like Lord's short ball plan or um, edge best and seconding sort of stuff. I, I think England... Uh, played a few attacking shots that weren't there, but they weren't necessarily, like, obvious stupid shots that, like, Australia were planning for. It was just lack of concentration, a bit of laziness, a bit of bad decision-making, which led to 283. So I, I think England's uh, sort of leaving 1,500 out there was more a product of just a bit of a bad batting execution day rather than sort of bad gamesmanship or bad planning. Um, and yeah, Australia, 61 for 1 in response. David Warner is the only one dismissed. Once again, looked good. And then just found a way to go out. Um, just poked. He just reached quite hard. I think Woke sort of changed the angle and uh, sort of just let it sort of seam away a bit further away from his body. And that helped. Um, one of the great statistics that um, from from yesterday that I, I really liked was that Usman Khwaja is the first Australian opener face of a thousand deliveries in Ashes series since Mark Taylor. And I think Usman Khwaja is a big big part of Australia's success in this series. Yes, in the last few test matches, these runs haven't been there as much as they were in the sort of the first two, but even then, he doesn't get out very early, very often. There's been a few innings, but he battles through the new ball, he does the hard work. Labuschagne and Smith aren't coming out for 5 for 2 or 10 for 2, because Kwaja and Warner are doing that hard work there. They're not easy wickets. Um, and obviously Edgbaston, he was the, the hero, and so him and Pat Cummins were the hero behind that victory, um, but he's played a few other innings here and there, but he's been a major part of Australia's success, and perhaps a major part of Australia's sort of legacy-defining day tomorrow, because I think that's what day two pre- premises to be, if it could be like Edgbaston was stood broad, or just one of the England bowls comes out and gets a few early wickets, and all of a sudden England are back in the test match, or... Labuschagne has found his form back, Smith who's due, and Kwaja who's just a rock if they get going, Travis Head with his runs, Mitchell Marsh with his runs, then Australia could potentially really get ahead of this test match, I don't know, finish the day maybe, 100 ahead, um, and then all of a sudden England have a lot of, lot of hard work to do to save themselves from a series loss, an outright series loss, and then whatever happened, happens in the fourth test match doesn't necessarily matter, while it's probably not the most um, logically sound analogy because 2-all has momentum and more confidence going to fifth test match compared to 2-1 knowing that Ashes are slipped away um, England can't there's still grafting to be done tomorrow, there's still hard work to be done tomorrow because 3-1 looks worse than 2-2 and for Australia 3-1 is what they're so desperately striving for and England should take joy 
I would have taken that away from them. So uh, I don't think this test match is dead drama by any means. There, there's a lot to play for, and that's why I thought day one was so fascinating, and that's why I think day two will also be so fascinating. If you are enjoying these daily breakdowns of final test match, I've been consistent throughout the whole uh, the whole Ashes series, and please give me a follow on your podcast app. Um, we are working behind the scenes to enhance production quality. I, I have sort of received some of the feedback from you guys on the production quality, uh, working behind the scenes. Also, please uh, rate the podcast, uh, leave a review, and any feedback to my email or to my Twitter is much appreciated. See you back again tomorrow for day two.